Hi, hello, and welcome back to the Vitriol Podcast episode 10. Now, first things first, those of you that listen to the podcast will know that I suffer from a little condition called endometriosis. And I, not to play the blame game, but the delay in posting this has been a combination of severe pain from endometriosis and a little bit of procrastination. But really being honest, like it's probably about 50-50. So sorry, but I finally got my lazy ass back to the podcasting mic and we are back with the 10th episode. Wow, I really did that. We were on 10 episodes now. So for those of you that don't know me, uh, my name's Maddie and I'm a proud science nerd. And while the effects of COVID are still wreaking havoc on all of us and I subsequently cannot do my usual in-person boozy science events, I'm bringing you these podcasts instead. And I do have some exciting news. I am actually in the process of organizing an event in October with the wonderful team at Workshop in Redfern, Sydney. So stay up to date with my Instagram and this podcast for details when that's all locked in so you can be the first to know. So I hope that you're all keeping well and that this podcast might be helping to engage your brain. As always, if you have any subject suggestions or follow-up questions, please get in touch with me. You can find me on Instagram at vitriol underscore science. You can also contact me via my website, which is vitriolscience.com, where you can find my email address and also some super cute merch items. So this week... I am going to be talking about the history of some drugs and how they ended up with the sort of reputation we have today. Now, I wasn't entirely sure what to call this episode, so I've just gone with a classic little shout out to any South Park fans out there like myself, um, drugs are bad, okay? I've picked these three specifically just because I think that they have an interesting history, especially with the last one, I think somewhat the opposite of what we think about it or what we think of it as now. So yeah, let's get into it. Um, So given, like I said, that that's what I'm going to be talking about, I want to start off by saying that do not at me about promoting the use of drugs because I am in no way, shape or form promoting or glamorizing the use of any of these substances. And I'm going to be speaking about them from a science and history perspective only. With that in mind, let's get into it. The first one I'm going to be speaking about today is ketamine. So ketamine was discovered in 1962 and was first tested in humans in 1964 and approved for use in the United States in 1970. Now, 1962 to 1964, that's pretty, that's pretty quick, guys. I don't know that we would see any sort of clinical trial for a new drug be so quick today, but you know. The 60s were a different time, so whatever. Ketamine was extensively used as a surgical anesthesia during the Vietnam War. And it's also now used as a recreational drug for its hallucinogenic and dissociative effects. So the non-medical use of ketamine began on the west coast of the United States in the early 1970s, which, if you remember from when it was approved for use, pretty much the exact same time that it was approved for use medical use in the United States. So almost immediately it begins being used in a non-medical instance. So the incidence of non-medical ketamine use 
increased through the end of the century, especially in the context of raves and other parties. However, its emergence as a club drug differs from other club drugs due to its anesthetic properties at higher doses. Its rise in the dance culture was was very rapid in Hong Kong by the end of the 1990s and much of the current ketamine diverted for non-medical use actually originates in China and India. So at a low dose, ketamine produces a dissociative state characterized by a sense of detachment from one's physical body and the external world, which is known as depersonalization and derealization. Now, Speaking as someone who uh, takes mental health very seriously, I have anxiety and a couple of other things going on in my magnificent brain, and I have experienced depersonalization and derealization, not ketamine-induced, just I have experienced it, and reading about ketamine and the fact that it does this and people seek it out to use it is so baffling to me because I have never experienced anything as terrifying as when I have had instances of a dissociative state. So at sufficiently high doses, users can experience what is called a K-hole, which is a state of dissociation with visual and auditory hallucinations. Just when I thought it couldn't get more terrifying, that literally sounds like my actual idea of hell. No thanks. So ketamine appears not to produce sedation or anesthesia in snails. This was just a fun little fact that I found among my research, which I thought was really weird. Um, For whatever reason, in snails, it appears to have an excitatory effect, uh, which means that ketamine actually excites their neurons. So there you go, snails. The second drug that I'm going to be talking about is nitrous oxide or laughing gas or uh, nangs for those cool cats out there or you cool cats and kittens listening out there. Um, So look, I'd be lying if I said it didn't bring me great joy um, to let those of you out there who have dabbled in nangs and have thought it's all very new and cool um, that you're actually pretty basic because this started back in 1799 yeah so the recreational inhalation of nitrous oxide with the purpose of causing euphoria or slight hallucinations began as a phenomenon for the british upper class in 1799 where they would they would literally throw laughing gas parties that's what they were called So there you go. In the United Kingdom, as of 2014, nitrous oxide was estimated to be used by almost half a million young people at night spots, festivals and parties. The legality of that use varies greatly from country to country and even from city to city in some countries. So laughing gas, where did she come from? I'm going to delve into a little bit of anesthetic history. These these three drugs, their history has an attachment to the subject of anesthetic use and dabbling around with anesthetics and tinkering with chemicals and making new and exciting substances. So in 1540, a bloke named Valerius Cordus, don't at me about the pronunciation. I know it's probably wrong and I'm also a little bit bogan, so let's just move on. So he first synthesized ether, which was the very first anesthetic that was ever developed. He created this by distilling ethanol and sulfuric acid and he named it the sweet oil of vitriol, 
That is why my business is called Vitriol Science. So there you go. Fun fact. Just full of fun facts today. So he created Ether. And given that it was new and so exciting, it was the first anesthetic, it was the subject of intense uh, tinkering. This was also back in a time where chemists would create things and, you know, we, we didn't have chemical trials or any sort of regulations around things like that then. So they literally would just inhale things that they made themselves and kind of see what happens. Or in some cases, um, much to my disgust, they would, they would give it to their dog or something like that and see what happened. So there was a young chemist called Humphrey Davy. And he was fiddling around with ether. And in his tinkering, he created a gas. And wanting to know what it did, he just inhaled it. And this was laughing gas. Literally, again, just from like playing around with things, um, which I would not recommend anyone do, just obviously. So yeah, he was just playing around with sweet oil of vitriol or ether, um, mixing it with some stuff and creating a gas and he inhaled it. And after he had inhaled it, one of the things he noticed almost immediately and wrote about in his notebooks later was its effects on pain and that he noticed that it reduced it. So he published this discovery that nitrous oxide relieved pain and even stated its potential in surgery. Even though he made this amazing discovery, he did nothing about it. So for the next few decades, surgeons went on operating on fully conscious patients and nitrous oxide was still just mainly being used as a recreational drug for laughing gas parties. So it was actually at one of these laughing gas parties in America that a young dentist called Horace Wells came across the gas and saw how effective it was at dulling pain. Because his days were spent yanking out teeth, it made a pretty deep impression on him, which is understandable. After experimenting first on himself and then on some patients, he realized he'd stumbled upon something really miraculous, a gas that could open the way to pain-free surgery. So he headed to Harvard Medical School in Boston to tell the elite surgeons what he'd found. In 1845, he appeared before an audience of doctors and medical students and demonstrated the use of nitrous oxide as an anesthetic. So there you go. Who knew that the nangs that you may or may not inhale at, I don't know what do kids go to now? Well, nothing because COVID, but you know, (laughs) pre-COVID, that is the history of the nitrous oxide that you inhale from balloons. So there you go. Now, moving on to the last drug that I'm going to be talking about. This is kind of where I had trouble naming this episode i was originally going to call it party drugs because there's you know ketamine and nangs i think the majority of us will associate with people partying and all that kind of stuff but the last drug that i'm going to be talking about is heroin and the reputation of heroin is very much not attached to a party scene um so just to bring that back the reason that i am going to be talking about it is just that i i find its history fascinating and a little bit crazy considering what we now know about it so a chemist at bayer created aspirin from modifying salicylic acid an anti-fever medication his name was arthur and he has a last name that i cannot pronounce but i'll try it just for entertainment's sake arthur eichengrun And he was the first chemist to synthetically modify a chemical 
and create another drug or medication. So this was a huge, huge step for chemistry and a huge step for Bayer as well, being, well, now you will know them as one of the big pharma companies. So there you go. There was another chemist at Bayer that was inspired by this and decided to try the same with morphine. The result of which was diamorphine, better known to us as heroin. Interestingly, both of these drugs, aspirin and heroin, arrived in front of the chief tester, Heinrich Dreeser, and he promptly rejected one of them on the grounds that he believed it was dangerous. Ironically enough, the one he rejected was aspirin because he said it was bad for the heart. But old Heinrich, tell you what, he bloody loved heroin. In fact, he named it because of the associations with heroic, powerful And with his ringing endorsement behind it, heroin was soon being marketed to the world by Bayer. It was developed primarily as a morphine substitute for cough suppressants that did not have morphine's addictive side effects. Morphine at the time was a popular recreational drug and Bayer wished to find a similar but non-addictive substitute to the market. From 1898 through to 1910, diamorphine was marketed under the trademark name heroin as a non-addictive morphine substitute and cough suppressant. Knowing what we know now about heroin, this was this was a pretty big mistake, <laughs> but that is a bit of the history of how it was discovered, how it was made, and the fact that it was marketed and readily available like Panadol or, you know, actual cough medication nowadays just blows my mind, especially considering the negative impact that heroin and opiate use has had um, worldwide. So that ends this episode on Drugs Are Bad, okay? And I hope that you enjoyed it. I hope that you're all also staying safe and that if you have any questions, you get in touch with me via my Instagram or via my website. So guys, stay safe. And until next week, I will be working on episode 11. Thanks, guys.